Lights, camera, action. Today, we have with us on Conversations with Charlie, Brad Anderson, a veteran filmmaker, director, writer, editor, a true filmmaker. It's our pleasure and my pleasure to invite on Conversations with Charlie, Brad Anderson. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, Charlie. Happy to be here. As you know, um, we go way back. Yes, we do. Kind of way back. Back to the days like, of Boston. Yeah, the 90s. The mid-90s. <laughs> maybe even the early 90s. If, yeah, we really, if we really wind the clock back. I think it is. I think it's kind of early 90s. Correct. Yeah. But, and we'll swim back there, but I, I want to start with yeah. what's going on right now. What's happening in the life of, of you as we speak? <laughs> Well, currently I'm up at my beautiful uh, upstate New York, Hudson Valley, little cabin in the woods where I come to retreat away from family and madness and sometimes do a little work up here, do some writing. And, you know, it's, it's my little kind of away place. Um, and I've been up here, you know, since finishing some TV episodes. I Lately, this since COVID, you know, it's in a lot of television, frankly, um, episodic television. I tend to split my time between doing the TV stuff and doing uh, trying to get the movies off the ground, right? The independent features. Yeah. So, I mean, currently I'm, I'm in between projects, as they say. I just finished a Netflix show. And before that, I was doing a thing for HBO Max. And before that, doing something for one of the networks. So I'm kind of going, you know, kind of across the board um you know working love to stay busy i don't like to just sit on my haunches i like to kind of always be working it just keeps me going you know i love doing it right mm -hmm. so um you know when i'm not working like behind the camera directing i'm writing something or trying to find a way to corral money to get a movie off the ground you know so kind of always in a place of doing one or two of those things Right. And tell me about the, these current episodic projects and how they found you. I mean, obviously, you've done so much episodic going back to, I mean, you did The Wire. And I mean, you've been doing this a lot of years, right? Yeah. I have. Yeah. I mean, TV kind of kicked in, television directing kicked in for me, you know, early when I, you know, when I first kind of got into the business, if you will, after my first couple movies kind of got a little traction. Um, my first TV episode I ever did was an episode of Homicide, actually. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Barry Levinson's show. Um, and yeah, I did The Wire and many other episodes since then. Um, you know, I I have a, you know, how do I get them? I mean, like anyone, I've got my agents who work for me on the TV ends of things and also on the film ends of things. Usually, I've been doing, you know, my the thing I love doing more than just simply an episode of a show of an ongoing show or a new show is doing the pilot, you know, kind of launching the show, creating it. Um, it's as close as you can get to doing a movie because you're doing all the bells and whistles, casting it, finding the look of the show. You're creating the show from the ground up. But that's really my preference. But um, as I said, COVID kind of put a little monkey wrench in, in things over the past year and a half. So it's just starting to pick up now in a pretty good way. Like there's a lot of work coming down the pike, but 
for a while there, it was just kind of like grab it while you can, you know, because there wasn't as much going on and you had to go to Canada and quarantine for two weeks and it was a big, big drag. But, you know, so I just, uh, I'm always seeking out different projects. I like doing, when I'm doing television, I like doing stuff that's not always in my wheelhouse, like stuff I tests my limits as a director and as a creator. Like I did an episode of the show called Peacemaker, which is a new HBO Max show with John Cena, which is like kind of like a, you know, it's a superhero show. James Gunn's the creator of the show, right? He did Suicide Squad. So it's got, it's crazy. It's kooky. It's like big action. Is this sort of part of the Marvel world and all that? Or DC, DC Comics? DC, like DC yeah. Comics? Yeah. It's DC, but, um, but it's, uh, but yeah, it's a big, it's superhero stuff, right? Um, but in his own, I mean, James Gunn's stuff tends to be a little more tongue in cheek. So it's not a straight up the line superhero stuff. But I did an episode of that, which was really fun, different, you know, like I'm not, that's not necessarily my thing, but as a director, it's always fun to jump into genres that, nece that aren't necessarily your thing, you know, to try your hand at other sorts of things, um, dramatic things, whether it's a comedy or, a, you know, a hospital show or whatever, you know, so um, the show I just did is a new Netflix show called devil in ohio which is kind of a i don't know a dark um sort of thriller about kids getting sucked into cults <laughs> i tend to gravitate towards darker things tends mm -hmm. to be my thing at least has been for some time now oh yeah absolutely i mean when when you go way back you, you kind of started off with a, a couple of rom-coms really before you yeah. dug in dug your teeth into uh going the other direction um uh, I, I i've always i'm always fascinated by the beginnings because you started doing everything you were a director a writer but you're also the editor and i mean you yeah. I think you were almost like playing every base on the field when you began right i mean you were you were yeah. truly like the entire thing right you were that's cutting. Right. Yeah. yeah yeah you're right yeah but that's by virtue of having no you know not knowing enough people in the business early on to be able to do those jobs for me so i was just sort of jumping on and doing it yourself kind of thing you know yeah i mean the first movie the first you know i've always been of the mind that like i want to if i can't do it i mean i delegate you, you have to learn to delegate as a director and work surround yourself by people who really know what they're doing obviously but you also want to know what those people are doing in your own mind and be and you know know how it works and how the whole creative process works so so I, yeah i've done i like to think of myself more as a film direct filmmaker rather than simply a film director because i do like to dabble in all parts of particularly the editing particularly the post-production side of things i love that like that's a blast you know as you know like just getting into the cutting and the, all the different elements that come into finishing a movie yeah um so yeah i've uh i my first movie was you know again just like soup to nuts wrote it directed it edited it. didn't have didn't act in it that's one part i never do claim to want to do but pretty much all the other parts of the process and then going out and trying to sell it and get it get it out there into the world like that's a whole another sort of side of the equation which is i've learned a little bit more about over the years you know like the business side of things you know you got to yeah. learn that it takes time but you know eventually you kind of figure it out that's yeah well, I mean, for you, it's like if going back, I mean, 
were what 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 drew you the most to to filmmaking as a writer creator and then being able to transition from that to being a hired hand with someone else's work and how do you work with the people who write and you come on and direct because i know that you had a very strong initiative starting out as a writer director and and yet the craft as we well know is being able to interpret the writing of others and uh and and working with other people yeah yeah it's good to be able to have both skills you know i mean my first few films were movies i originated on my own i wrote the scripts or co-wrote the scripts and you know very much in the in keeping with the sort of independent film scene in the mid to throughout the 90s right it's just kind of like guerrilla style filmmaking you find you finance it on a credit card you write it you direct it you cast your friends and you know, that kind of thing right that was the original that's how i got into this so the idea of like being hired to direct another person's script seemed very alien to me but eventually i came around to doing that and you know the first film i did that i didn't hadn't written was um the machinist which was written by scott kosar and that experience was like you know i gravitated towards scripts that i felt like i could have written you know and i felt very connected to the stories those are the kind that's why i was interested in doing that and i always find a way to work with a writer on a project where i can feel like i can own it a little bit and not you know you know, go in and do a pass on my own to sort of bring it more into my sensibilities you know that's sort of a part of the process that i i've always done in my movies if i haven't written them i i kind of get into get under the hood a little bit and tinker with it because it's makes it feel like I own it a little bit more. Um, but I like that process. It, as you said, interpreting, knowing how to interpret um, another person's vision and make it your own or kind of collaborate with that person is a very kind of critical part of the process and enjoyable. And like, frankly, often gives you better results because you're, you have someone to play off of, you have a sounding board, you can, you know, you can, when you're being stupid, they can tell you and vice versa. Whereas if it's just you in the room, you think you're a genius, you're not. (laughs) So I think having a, having a collaborator in that process, in the writing process, and then even down the road um, is critical. You know, I think maybe the only part of the process where you don't is, is sort of when you're directing, although that collaboration is with the cast, right? And you're kind of like working together with them to sort of f- find a character. And so, but I, but I enjoy the both, I, bo- I, I enjoy both writing as well as, you know, finding scripts that I like enough to want to find a way to get them made. Yeah. I mean, going back to when, when you did Happy Accident, you got a chance to really do so much fun stuff. And then you you moved over in the machinist, like to working in this was in Barcelona with producers from Europe. How did that how did that happen? Tell me a little bit about how that because I, I remember hearing about you doing it from, I guess, bumping into you. But I, did, I never really knew the story about how you ended up doing this film in Barcelona. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that came out of, I mean, I, my first couple of movies, as you said, were romantic comedies that I wrote, you know, in the early, in the, in the sort of mid to late nineties. And, and that was kind of how I got my start in some ways. Um, my first, yeah. you know, my second movie got picked up by Miramax. If you want to talk about that, we can talk about that. But basically, yeah, yeah. I, I then, um, you know, wanted to 
try my hand at a darker tone and i made a film called section nine which was a dark uh you know horror film essentially set at a mental hospital up in boston yeah that movie, that movie um has gone on to become kind of like a bit of a cult film um but at the time it uh it was it got a lot of people in europe really loved that movie and there was a spanish film company in barcelona that really adored it and wanted to work with me and i so happened to have been working with scott on the machinist the script and um and uh we were trying to get the movie financed here in the states the machinist um trying to finance here in, the, in, the, in america but they just no one was going for it even with christian bale attached you know this is before christian bale became who he is but um but eventually this company filmax in barcelona said yeah we'll do it um the only thing is you have to shoot it here in spain um the movie if you've ever seen it is is set in not spain it's set in some kind of quasi american somewhat surreal reality you know it seems like it's california but it's not really it's, it's sort of a it's kind of a weird fever dream type american city you know? i don't really know where it's set and in some ways like by shooting in barcelona and by trying to make barcelona into some kind of west coast american city it kind of added to the the weird dreamlikeness of the movie it actually worked to our advantage but initially i was like how are we going to make this movie which scott had set in los angeles in in, in barcelona um it just seems impossible but I went over there, we did a scout, we checked it out, we looked at various locations and we decided that there was a way to, to make it work. So yeah, we shot the film in Barcelona. It was not a bad place to make a movie. I mean, come on, best food in the world, lovely people have built a relationship with that company after. Yeah, you did, right. You, did another, you did another film with them, Trans-Siberian, right? Trans-Siberian, yeah. And, and we've tried to get other movies off the ground since, you know, so I have a really nice connection now in Spain with you know a lot of great people, some of the crew people that worked on the machinist ended up working on a few of my other movies so it's become kind of like a a real uh like you know favorite place of mine so yeah i mean um but that but the machinist um was uh again in keeping with this uh in my career um not really having when you're you know in the midst of a career you're not thinking about necessarily how to how do uh, what the direction of it's going to go you just do what you want to do you do what you love you do what your passion drives you to do so i had fallen out of this of the interest of doing sort of romantic comedies and more kind of like sweet music driven like relationship movies and wanted to do stuff that was darker and grittier and has always been an interest of mine not straight out horror but more psychological horror right or psychological drama yeah. So that's that kind of started that venture into those sorts of that sort of tonality in terms of the films I've, I've done. Um, the Machinist kind of was the break, the, the, or the session nine really was the, the moment of sort of moving in a different direction. Um, you know, and I, I always think as a filmmaker, you want to also not be tied into one kind of movie or one kind of genre. I mean, you know, I've tried to mix it up in the movies that I've done since then. I mean, I've done different kinds of films um and each one is its own sort of challenge you know creating a world whether it's a period world or a or a movie set in beirut or something in the 80s like finding a way to like kind of you know tell a story in a different way like that's always been interesting to me and not tell it in the same way 
Yeah. Well, talk to me about about Beirut that you just mentioned and how that came about. That was an that was an interesting turn for you. I like that one. Yeah. 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 Again, like a different kind of movie. I hadn't done, you know, sort of essentially kind of a political thriller, if you will. Exactly. Um, but it again, it came out of, I guess, filmmakers or directors or whatever producers who've seen my other movies who's been interested in working with me that one was tony gilroy who wrote the script um he had seen trans-siberian and really loved it and and sent me a project of his like because he couldn't get it made he had written beirut back in the early 90s hmm. um and uh and was to direct himself or no actually no i think john frankenheimer at one point was attached to direct it it's like it had this weird circuitous path interesting and ultimately ended up on a shelf gathering dust for over 15, 12 15 years he dusted it off and brought it to me and uh, or one of the producers attached brought it to me with tony's blessing and like said are you interested in this project and of course i think tony gora is like an amazing writer and a oh yeah writer. and it was like the, the opportunity to actually you know create or work on a movie with him in some ways um was was cool and also just the story was really unique and fresh and I, as i said i hadn't done it much like that but i love the idea of the adventure of going to a place and in that movie recreating war-torn beirut you know circa 1980 like what would that be like how would we do it on a, on a real logistical level and it also just had great a great sort of you know a, lots of curves in the story and um so I love the challenge of it. So anyhow, that movie came out of Tony's, um, you know, kind of giving his blessing to sort of get his script off the ground. We were able to get John Hamm attached and Rosalind Pike, Rosamund Pike, and um, and we're able to get the movie made. We shot it in um, Morocco, Tangier. That was our substitute for Beirut in Beirut. the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, you couldn't do it in Beirut. I mean, Beirut's now like a super modern city and also maybe dangerous. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, but so that, so that movie was, uh, again, a kind of reinvention for me. Um, but I really, I love that genre too. I mean, I kind of, it reminded me a little bit of one of my favorite movies of uh, the year living dangerously, the Peter Weir movie. Oh, I love Peter. that film. Yeah. yeah. And so I, that was kind of my touchstone, like this sort of exotic thriller set in a faraway land where this, this dude's trying to like, you know, negotiate his way through all this political turmoil. And, and it kind of, there's a little bit of a romance there too as well. And like that kind of idea of like, just doing something in that way out of my wheelhouse was really cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I always, I always like jump at those opportunities um, to, you know, embark on, a, on an adventure that's, so it takes me to some place I'd never been before, too. Like I love that part of it. And then when you did Fractured with with Sam Worthington, that that came about uh, uh, more recently, right? I mean, that's hmm. that. Talk to me a little bit about Fractured. So that movie uh, was a movie that um, was brought to me by the producers, who again just thought I'd be a good fit for it. Um, and it was a Netflix movie. Netflix um, was producing that movie. Um, I'd never done anything with Netflix before. So the opportunity of doing something as we all are doing now in the streaming world was exciting. Um, and I dug the story. It's very dark. It's very much like 
you know, earlier films of mine, like The Machinist or Session Nine, it's super twisty and weird. And it deals with like, it's a movie that deals with a guy who's like questioning the reality around him in a way, or what's real, what's delusional. So I love those kind of stories that, that walk that line. Um, and it was very contained. It was all set in a hospital. So it was like really doable. Um, and anyhow, so that was, uh, that was um, uh, Netflix that uh, um, got, you know, got me on board that movie. We got Sam attached and um, we shot that movie up in Winnipeg in Canada, um, which has now become like a kind of go-to place for cheap filmmaking. <laughs> this is what I've heard. Yeah. It's off the beaten path, but it's kind of a cool place. I did another movie there recently, my last movie actually. So, you know, Fractured was, uh, was my first experience dealing with that kind of world, just Netflix. And, you know, oddly enough, it was a, there was a big success for them. I mean, they, they, their metrics for measuring, like, how a movie does, of course, are very different than how a studio measures it. But, you know, when they were, when they kind of released the movie on the Friday night at 11.59, like they do, it got a lot of hits, a lot of eyeballs, a lot of people saw that movie on Netflix. And so that was really gratifying. But in some weird way, it was also my first sort of understanding that you don't have the kind of sense of completion that you have when you make a movie that hits the theaters and it's out there and then it's you know what i mean it has a sort of feeling of of more it, it feels more so, sort of grounded in a way the, the streaming experience with your movies is kind of like oh, there it is okay it's people are watching it i guess you know what i mean it's hard to kind of get a sense as to like how a movie's doing but regardless it's, it's hanging in the portfolio of of what's available to watch yeah rather just, than being a, on a marquee yeah it comes up in your little gallery or whatever of like things that are recommended um but yeah i mean that was a cool experience i, I actually really like that movie it's very twisted but um and uh and so that movie uh you know gave me some connections at netflix and then i went on after that to do a, a pilot for them called clickbait which was also a big hit for them um that uh came out last year or this just this past year um so yeah sort of like that's how often these things work right like one one relation one one project kind of finds a way to dovetail into the next because of a relationship or or whatever you know like I, i it's like a kind of swervy way to do it but i kind of enjoy finding those finding the next project sort of in that way you know it's just it's more surprising. Suddenly you'll, you'll be finding yourself doing a movie that you would, had no idea that was, you know, in the cars and you're, and it's exciting. Yeah. And, and a whole slew of, of series television, as, as you described from, from having done homicide in the wire all the way through to current day. I mean, you did, I remember seeing, cause like when I was working still in the lab, seeing your name on the slate of episodes. Support. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, yeah. we used to right. shoot film. Remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> great. Saw my film. Saw my name on the slate. Nice. In in, in Boardwalk Empire, I was like, All oh right, God, Brad's directing Boardwalk Empire. How fabulous is this? That had to be an incredible experience. Talk to me about that. That was really fun. I mean, that might have been the last thing I did on film. Frankly, um, it was all film. Shot that on film. Uh, you know, I don't think that was around the time that television was starting to move away from film and everyone was shooting digital. Right. 
Exactly right. Um, 2010, 2011. Exactly. Right. The transition. And now, you know, now, now it's a bit of a mixed bag. There's a little bit of both, but mostly it's not film anymore. But that was great. I mean, you know, I mean, what a great, cool world to, I, you know, again, like 1920s New York, you know, Brooklyn, like that world of like gangsters and, um, you know, uh, it, it was just a fascinating kind of period. And to dive, to get the, get the opportunity to sort of dive into that. And they had that amazing set, the boardwalk set over in Williamsburg. I think it was Williamsburg where the giant like pier that was jutting out in the East River that they had converted into a, into a boardwalk set, you know, with big green screens for doing digital extensions. And like the, the wardrobe department was like literally almost like an entire stage at Steiner Studios, just like, with every 1920s style wardrobe you can imagine, all the hats and everything it was incredible. So it was like so fun, you know, because it was like so unusual, not necessarily the thing I would ever do if without, if it weren't a television show, you know? Right. Um, and working with, you know, just great actors who many of, you know, went on to great things. And of course, you know, Steve Buscemi and really cool experience. Um, and HBO is always like, you know, that's sort of like the Cadillac of television when you get those gigs because they're, they've got a, much more in the terms of money that goes into their projects, into their episodes, and they don't hold back. So you just kind of have everything at your disposal. It's just like, great. And on a show like that, I think probably with All Stories TV, you're working as uh, one director amongst five six different directors sometimes on a series like that i don't know how many directors there were on boardwalk but there were quite a few am i correct so episode to episode and it right. is there what what is there any experience that you have i've never talked to any of the other directors that worked on boardwalk other than the show creator because we worked when i you know did the pilot what that marty directed and and was and was shot by Stu Dryberg. Okay. You know, there's a, a theme created. And then after that, multiple directors come in to, to take yeah. over. So what what's that handoff like? And is there a discussion between directors and between other artists that are on the job or you just come in and and uh, and and, you know, sort of what needs to be done for the episode? And there's uh, there's not much uh, uh, of a of a of a collaboration or handoff from the other many directors that are on the show. There's not much collaboration with the other directors. Now, first of all, yes, without mostly generally like a series like that will have multiple directors who come in to do different episodes. Yeah. It used to, you know, whether it's a network show or a, or a cable show, um, you know, unless it's like a certain kind of mini series where one director will do all episodes, but that's, and that's becoming more of a thing, but generally with like a long running series, you'll have multiple directors coming in. It used to be you do an episode and you walk away. Now you, they tend to break it into blocks. So you do a couple episodes, you know, like the Netflix mm -hmm. thing I just did, I did two episodes back to back. And that's just so that they can kind of get more, more bang for their buck when you're doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, you come in and uh, you're the guy for those episodes. There's generally a, you know, it's, it's, it's a little, it's a bit of a learning curve because you have to sort of, learn the show and learn the vibe of the show not just you know the look of it and the feel of it and the tone of it but also just like the the 
where the characters are and their trajectory. So you know what the hell you're talking about when you're on set, right? So you usually watch all the other episodes as much as you can. If, you know, if you're doing episode six, you watch the prior episodes, try to get a handle on it. And then you have multiple discussions with the showrunner, the creator, and, and uh, there's usually a supervising director whose job it is to kind of like squire the different directors through the process and help them sort of get, understand what's going on, what's happening. So you do, you're not just like thrown into it and expect it to like deliver. So, but, I, but, you know, so each episode, every time you do a television show, you're kind of like, you're kind of learning a template of, you're learning a little style for that show that you then kind of apply to your episode as much as you can. You're not going to reinvent the wheel, right? It's like if the show shot all handheld, like say Homicide was back in the day, then you're not going to come in and throw the throw it on the dolly for every shot. On the other sense, with Boardwalk, it was a very it was a very kind of meticulously designed show. So you didn't do a lot of handheld. So, you, you know, you find a way to kind of stylistically adapt to the show. And, and then you kind of, uh, you jump in. And then once you're in it, you know, they don't hire directors just to simply, you know, yell action and cut. Like they want them to bring a vision to the show, even if the show already has its overarching vision. So, you know, Marcus Scorsese did the pilot, like they want for each episode subsequent to that, they want to bring in directors who are going to who are going to riff off of what he did and 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 continue this quality of of filmmaking. Um, not all shows. I mean, there's some shows which are more you dial it in, frankly, because it's like there isn't much of a style. You know, like that Boardwalk Empire was a very high bar. Like you know, if you have someone like Marty Scorsese doing the pilot, like you're going to damn well make sure you keep that quality going. Other shows don't really have as much, aren't as discriminating. But I tend to like gravitate and want to do shows that are better than, you know, that are good shows, that shows that I'd watch, shows that like have a certain style or substance to them. So that was one like with Boardwalk. Um, and, uh, but I, I, but yeah, it's definitely sometimes weird coming to set on day one and like the director who did the prior episode is leaving and you're kind of, it's like, yeah, he's passing, he or she is passing the baton to you and you're kind of like, okay, uh, jump right in. You know, you can't sort of have second thoughts about it. Oh no. I think it's good for the actors though, because they, they, they like having fresh blood. You know what I mean? Like people that can kind of come in and shake it up a little bit in terms of how the set is run or how they're directed. I mean, some, they might have certain directors they favor over others, but it keeps it interesting. And you don't kind of get into rote, just like this is how each episode is made. It's like you get, it makes it kind of different. So I think from the showrunner's perspective, having different directors come in for different episodes helps keep the show engaging and not falling into like, kind of like a rut, you know, visually and stuff. And when you worked with, with uh Halle Berry on the caller talk a little oh, bit yeah. about yeah, the yeah 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 the uh 911 show the call yeah, yeah. that was uh that that looked, like an, right now, that, that looked like an interesting one uh <laughs> she looked like it looked like a real freak show of uh of a story with with uh like all of the components of of racing to figure something out yeah. that was a fun yeah that was actually um that movie came out of, um, you know, another script that had been floating around for some time trying to get made. And 
um, had different directors attached, but ultimately I came on board and, um, and, uh, and we made that movie, uh, not for a lot of money. It wasn't a big movie. Holly did it because she just loved the idea of playing that character. It was something she had never done before, that kind of a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing about that film, which is it's like, it's sort of like, a, you know, it's like, it's a real kind of like pulse pounding, like nonstop kind of action film, which is to me was like, I hadn't really done that before. So having a chance to do something that's really driven by action, visually action, visual action and horror too. It's pretty horrific, uh, was really fun and exciting. And, um, and that movie, uh, uh, that's actually been on a, on a, just a purely monetary level. That's been my most successful film. That movie did really well, much better than it, it had, than, you know, had been anticipated. And, um, and it was, you know, tried to get a sequel going and for some reason it didn't come together but, but yeah that was um and i brought when i did the film we you know we like i said we didn't make the movie for it was it was sort of a middle to low budget film but i brought on a lot of people i had worked with in the business like tom yatska the, my director of photography who i'd done a lot of television with so i brought a lot of tv people in that i'd been working with because i knew that in order to do it at the budget that we had, we had to work quick and we had to work like efficiently like you do on television. Like we weren't just going to be sitting on our butts. And so it has that kind of like energy that, you know, a show like 24 might have, you know what I mean? Um, and that's what we were aiming for. And I think it succeeded in that level because, you know, we had to make it quick and down and dirty and, but still give it like, you know, the, the, the elevated thrillerness that we wanted to give it. Um, and yeah, so that movie, yeah, that's a, that movie was a was was a quite big movie for me, um, and yeah, I kind of I, I dug that one. It, it opened up a lot of doors for me, actually. <laughs> you know, just because and it, of, was, uh, it was it was yeah. makes money, they suddenly people start ringing your bell, right? You start calling, and and, and right after that calling. was was it was it Stone? Uh, uh, what was it the the Stone Hangers Asylum? Asylum, yeah, it was yeah. Mel Gibson's company did that icon, right? And that they was did. it. They were yeah. it was the yeah. Millennium, yeah, yeah. Mark Gill's company. Um, I mean, Mark Gill was the, the director, the executive. Uh, yeah, that movie came out of the call because they were they they called me because they wanted to. I had known Mark since Mark was one of the guys at Miramax who bought my first movie, Next Stop Wonderland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He he came. He said, well, "What would you be interested in doing a movie with us?" This is Millennium Films. These are the guys right. who do the big, you know, like the, the Expendables and those big movies. With right. like exactly, yeah, like like like. Uh, and so, anyhow, this was a script they had floating around, which was kind of this beautiful little story based on an Edgar Allan Poe short story about you know, kind of the lunatics taking over the asylum kind of gag. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Set in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds is you know based in based on a Poe story, and uh, was, the original title is called Eliza Graves, which was a much better title. They changed it because they did, but um, and so it was sort of this sort of love story set among people at, at an asylum and you know in, in, at a remote Gothic asylum. So it was it was a fun movie, um, very challenging because again. Uh, you know, period and um, 
a big cast for that one. We shot that movie in Bulgaria uh, because um, that's where Millennium Films has a studio. They have their Uba stages. Anna. They have their stages in Sofia. Yeah, in Sofia, and they have huge stages, and and they can build things on a for a dime there. Like you could build a whole asylum for like your nothing because their construction is so cheap. So that was one of the reasons we shot there, and um, also we, most of the movie is inside the asylum, so it was a lot of sets that we built. Um, and that movie was, uh, you know, it was, we, we got a good cast. Ben Kingsley was in it. Michael Caine made a cameo. Kane. We had, you know, Jim Sturgis plays the, the lead. And then, um, you know, we, you know, Kate Beckinsale plays uh, Eliza Graves. And we had a lot of other great, David Thewlis was in it. I mean, there's such a great cast in that movie. There's all these Brits that I was so excited to work with, particularly David Thewlis, because I always admired his work. Um, but having Michael Caine like step on the set, he played one of the one of the inmates at the asylum. Gold it was standard. pretty wild, man. Yeah. Um, and him and Ben Kingsley hadn't done a movie together. So they had done one movie, like a Sherlock Holmes movie, back in the seventies together. Like one played Watson, one played Sherlock Holmes, or something. And so they hadn't seen each other in like twenty years, and this is like a little reunion for them. It was kind of cool. Uh, but yeah, so that was uh, that was Stonehurst Asylum, which you know. My big disappointment with that film is that Millennium, the movie, the company that made it, just just took a dive with that one. They didn't. They didn't. The movie tested well. You know, you do the you do the NRG tests and you, they do all the marketing and all that. And it did. They was they were happy with how it was doing in terms of that department. But then I think when it it came to releasing it and putting it out there and really putting some money behind its release, they just they didn't do it like they should have, and the movie just didn't see the light of day unfortunately um you know which it could have but they didn't put enough into it so you know you you, know, you win some you lose some but i'm still yeah. proud of that film I, it's like you know what we did again on a fairly modest budget in terms of creating a world set in like 1880s you know victorian england you know was was pretty good i thought i thought we, we pulled it off pretty well great cast too yeah, and 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 it, it has sort of a a a career connection for you on a sense to, to session nine. I mean, in a asylum, right? But it's a totally different story, though. Dude, yeah. I've, that seems yeah. to be my thing. I I'm just the asylum. I I've done <laughs> I've done uh, three films. Uh, 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 no, no, I've done session nine was set at an abandoned mental hospital in Boston. There you go. And uh, Stoner's Asylum is set at a, a mental hospital, a lunatic asylum. And, and then um, the other movies are, they aren't about, they aren't set at asylums, like Fractured, for instance, but it, it may as well be because the guy is essentially mentally ill. <laughs> so like mental illness and like people who have lost their minds, whether they're at asylums or not, tends to be a thing that I gravitate to. Could be a Brad Anderson yeah. film. Yeah, if you, if you got some story about a crazy person, send it my way, man. Um, you know, and I, I don't know, I guess for whatever reason, I enjoy that world. Like I've always like some of my early influences or at least filmmakers I've admired are, are like, you know, Roman Polanski or Kubrick yeah. or Hitchcock, you know, like filmmakers who are walking that line between madness and sanity. You know what I mean? Like, what is it? 
I mean, I think of a movie like Repulsion, which is to me like perfection. Like, I think that movie is like the epitome of like a portrait of madness, you know? And I think that's interesting to sort of visually try to convey. Um, that's kind of what we were trying to do in Fractured, frankly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, that's for a guy, his first yeah. few films were about romance and romantic comedies, and they were sort of driven by bossa nova soundtracks and all that. Like, yeah. I've, I've, I've gone, I've departed from that. The thing is, though, I've got, like, you know, like any filmmaker you talk to, I'm sure, like, they talk about the movies they've done. Uh, but then on, that's like a pyramid, right? There's the, the, the apex is the films you actually completed and got out into the world. And then beneath it is this giant structure of multiple film projects that either haven't ever gotten out there or are in the process of trying to get out there. So I've got like dozens of different projects I've tried to get made over the years and am now sort of still in the process of trying to get made. And like one of them, for instance, is a Brazilian bossa nova musical set in Brazil in the 60s. It's like a love story. It's like very much in the vein of my first couple of movies, which I've been trying to get made for years. It's like one of my passion projects, you know, nothing to do with mental illness, that one. And then, you know, but then and then I have a period film set in the in 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 Peru in 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 the in the 18th century that's a that's like an adventure story. I have another one that's based on a Jack London story that's so I, you know, you have all these different interests. Getting them made is is the trick, right? I mean, we don't all have the luxury of just being able to, you know, call up the money guys and boom, you're off and running. So I find a lot I spend a lot of my time, you know, when I'm not doing a television show or actually making a movie trying to get the financing, which is usually driven by the cast together so that the movie can get materialized again, right? Like right now I've got a project that I've, I'm out to an actor and if he says yes, we're making, you know what I mean? Like, so it's like, you know, you're always, you always have something stewing. But if I, if I, you know, if I had made just a fraction of all the movies I wanted to make, I would have like, you know, I would have so many more things on my roster, different types of movies and different types of genres. Right. Different genres. Cause you're, 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 you're constantly, and this is the struggle, right? Because, you know, no matter how many films you get asked to make, there are, there's the, the, the huge pile of development that you have of your own that, that you're waiting to make. And, uh, yeah. and it's endless. Exactly. And, you know, and then, and frankly, like, it's not always like, you know, it's not always like you end up making the, the movie that you wanted to make at the time you wanted to make it. Sometimes you just jump on a project because it's happening then and you're going to do it. Other times, like something will come down the pike that you weren't even expecting and suddenly you're making that movie. Like, you know, some of it's driven by the economics and the financial aspects of it. And, and, and some of it's driven by like an opportunity, you know, like, you know, uh, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush kind of thing. Right. Like I'm rather be making a movie than sitting around, you know, um, passing on projects in order to get the perfect passion project off the ground. Like I can't afford to do that, you know? So right. on one level, like I, I, sometimes I, you know, I'm a gun for hire on another level. I always have my two or three dream projects that I'm trying to get made up as well. And hopefully at some point they will, you know, they do, but it takes time. Right. And and wind the clock back to Sundance when the f the first big sale happens. This is like what next stop yeah. Wonderland, right? Ninety eight, yeah. I I mean I I'm we're both 
compadres with similar people, but you know, Laura Bernieri was a good friend of mine as well. Right. I know she was on your stuff and, and I know there's a, a, a great story behind. There's always a great story back then about how, all, how it all came down. So why don't you tell me the next stop Wonderland story? Uh, well, that, yeah, what, how it all, this is a, this is the, a, a good era at Sundance. It was a good, it was a good time for like movies like that, right? Like smaller independent films. People wanted to see that these kinds of movies. Next Stop Wonderland was a romantic comedy or is a romantic comedy that I made back in the late nineties. It's my second movie. My first movie called The Darien Gap, a little, yeah. as I said, indie guerrilla style movie made on credit cards um, was at Sundance a couple of years earlier. And that kind of got me, uh, you know, I, I may I met some people in Boston who had some money. One of them was a producer named Mitchell Robbins, Robbins. Um, or a money guy. He was a real estate guy. Ultimately, that's what he does. But he had money and he wanted to get in the movie business. So he and his friend Laura Bernieri were like, "Why don't you, uh, uh, why don't you do a movie, another movie here in Boston, and we'll make it?" And so they commissioned me and my friend to write a script. So we wrote Next Stop Wonderland, which was kind of a, a romantic comedy that was stewing in my head. Uh, set in boston and um wonderland's a subway stop yeah well next stop wonderland is a is a thing you will hear if you take the blue line in boston if you're heading out towards the airport wonderland station is one of the um is one of the stops along the way so it was kind of uh the last scene in the movie you'll it makes sense if when you see the movie the last scene in the movie but that movie uh we made uh mitchell robbins he financed the film shot it in boston Hope Davis was in that one. Phil Hoffman is in it. It's got a nice yeah. little cast. Um, and uh, and so it then went on to, it got into Sundance in 98. And um, we premiered it there uh, before the film festival had started. They wanted to show it to the various powers that be, including Harvey Weinstein and Miramax and Sony Classics and all the players. And so I remember going to that screen. It was so nerve wracking because it was the first big, for me, like, the first big screening with lots of big players in the audience and would they buy the movie or not? Right. Like would that, that's what you want. I mean, ultimately you want people to see your movie, but when you're at Sundance, you also want your movie to get purchased so that it goes out into the world and people will see it. So anyhow, uh, Harvey saw the movie and all the other guys, Mark Gill, who I mentioned before, saw it. they loved the film. A couple other companies were really into it. There's a little bit of a bidding war that went on as they, as it is. But ultimately, Miramax ended up buying that movie. Um, but in the process of of, uh, of making the deal, like, you know, I mean, I wasn't part of this, but I was privy to it. And this that whole process of like negotiating the, pr the price and how much the movie is going to cost and all that at a hotel room at, up at Steiner's Lodge and Stein Erickson. Yeah. Stein Erickson Lodge. Right. And just like hearing them talk about your movie, like, okay, well, off, well, okay, this will put down this much for the prints and advertising and blah, 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 and all the kind of negotiating that went on. And I'm just sitting there like a terrified, clueless spectator to all the business side of things, which I knew nothing about. I was just thrilled that someone was interested in buying, taking a movie and doing something with it. But then it was really about money and like, oh my God, how much is we're going to pay for the movie? And, and, oh man, it was nerve-wracking and exciting at the same time because to me it was like basically the start of what became my career because that when when Miramax buys your movie they give you like a picture deal right so I got like what they called like a three picture deal to like do other movies with Miramax um and they would release the film and which they ultimately did 
after they forced me to make multiple changes to the ending, which sucked. And that was the classic story of Harvey Weinstein, like sitting in a room with him and you're watching your movie with him. And he's like, this, this suck, lose this, cut this, change that and move that there. You know, literally telling you how to cut your film was terrifying. I didn't have the balls back then to like, be like, I'm not going to do it. I mean, I, some I resisted, but ultimately I did most of what he wanted me to do. It wasn't terrible, but it was still weird. And then he wanted us to reshoot the ending and the movie, the original movie, the end, the original ending of the movie ended on a, on a, on a, on a high note of, of ambiguity, whether these two people in the movie who had been meeting throughout would finally meet and, and, and get together. Right. And you never, you ended with the possibility of that happening, which to me was very elegant and beautiful and simple. And they, he thought it was too ambiguous. He wanted it to be more clear cut. They meet, they talk, and it's clear that they're, they're going to be a thing. And so we had to shoot this cornball ending of the two characters meeting on a bench and talking and sort of finding common things that they liked about each other. And it, it seemed really corny. And it was. And that ultimately was the movie that I had to put on the ending of the movie, um, the ending of the film. And that's the movie, that's the ending that's in the film now. But I thought the original ending was much better. But, you know, at the end of the day, I was not going to, you know, he, there were like, you know, if you don't do this, then we're not going to release the film. It was that kind of bullshit, right? That's the kind of thing that can hang over your head. You're, you're just a director who doesn't know what the hell's going on. You're like, oh, well, I'm not going to give up the possibility of them putting my film out there. So I'll, I'll play ball as much as I can. So I had to, and I did. I don't regret it, but I also feel like it taught me a lot about how the business works and the bullshit aspects of the business. And, and so they did release the film and it did okay. And, you know, and it opened up doors for me in many ways. And it gave me the so-called three picture deal with Miramax, which ultimately ended up being nothing for me because like the three or four projects we tried to get off the ground together, like never got off the ground. And ultimately it ended up stymieing my career because like I couldn't do other things until I had satisfied my Miramax like requirement of like doing another movie with them, which actually never happened. You know, it was a weird time too, you know, because I just wanted to make films. I wasn't going to sit around and wait for like them to green light one of my projects. Like it took too long. I just was eager to do it. So I made that movie Happy Accidents in between my deal with Miramax. I was like, fuck, I'm not going to sit around waiting to get a movie off the ground with Miramax. They didn't want to make that one. So I just went ahead and did it on my own, you know. Um, what a fun film. Sort of I mean, uh, what, a, what a fun film Happy Accidents is. I mean, yeah, no, yeah, that was yeah. a fun film. And I, and I, you know, I really wanted to do something again. Like I just done uh, Next Stop Wonderland and I wanted to do a film that was like, you know, in that vein, but, but this one was more, a little more like kooky inside fiction-y. And, uh, and so, but again, like I said, like I brought that movie to Miramax. I was like, this, this, what about this one? You know, let's do this next because they would have made it per our deal, but they didn't want to do that one. So I was like, well, what does that mean? I can't do the movie now? Like I, and, and they're like, you can do it, but then the next one you got to do with us. So it became this whole sort of process of like, like not being able to pursue projects I love because I had this so-called deal with Miramax, which seems like a good thing, but it's only good if you find projects that they're going to green light and do with you. If you couldn't, then you're just sitting there and it doesn't result in any, it's not productive. I mean, it would have been nice if we had made another movie together with them, but that, that, that didn't happen. Um, so anyhow, that, yeah, Miramax was a early, they were the big 
player back then, right? I mean, that was you know before all this shit went hit the fan as it has. But Miramax was like, you go to Sundance and like it was all about like if Harvey showed up, right? And they and his with all his people in tow, that was like they were like the luminaries at that festival. And when they saw your movie, if they liked your movie, you were set, you know. I think of those people like Kevin Smith, Ed Burns, like yeah, all of their like the the way that their careers were 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 accelerated by Harvey's blessing. That's yeah. what people. That's what you wanted back then. Yeah, they were launched. Launched. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And and Happy Accident was was such a fun theme because of the the D'Onofrio character. That guy is like. What he, yeah. what he what he what he uncovers what you uncover is so great so much fun to watch um go back in time a little bit for me now way way back because i know very little about uh the young brad anderson in madison connecticut but how the hell did you get into this mess uh uh, uh coming out of your your years growing up in in southern connecticut and your family it seems like you had some connections to the business always curious to hear about those stories time travel back to the early years time travel um, yeah well i don't know i mean i guess how does anyone fall into what they do uh i mean it's not that interesting only in that like i'd always had an interest in in movies i used to you know this was before uh, any kind of simple digital camera kind of technique, but the first movies I made were little Super 8 movies, right? Little Super 8 cameras, and I used to make little movies with my friends, and um, you know, with the three-minute mags, you know, and, exactly. and send it off to Kodak and get it back, and you like cut it together in a tiny little like mini, you know, Steenbeck, and you made these little films. They were these little movies, and they would make GI Joes. I mean, the silly stuff but exciting when you were, you know, young and you were exploring like what that could be. So that kind of was literally my first filmmaking was like when I was young, teenager, whatever, it, you know, influenced by all the usual suspects, Star Wars, uh, you know, Spiel, anything Spielberg did. Right. I mean, wasn't that it was pretty straightforward kind of like cinema that w was inspirational back then. It wasn't anything that that like off the beaten path, but definitely interested in it but ultimately like you know as i got older and went to college and all that i wasn't really interested i didn't see myself as getting into the film business i studied in school anthropology and russian I had nothing to do with movies but i'd always been interested in actually non-fiction film like making documentaries and that kind of was interesting to me so uh i ended up uh after college after you know, after college i ended up um going to a film school in london uh, called London Film School. There's two there. One was the International School and one was the London Film School. I went to the London International Film School. A lot of people from all over the world at a big old converted banana warehouse in Covent Garden and really like soup to nuts kind of how to make a movie, like how to load a camera, how to hang a light, how to cut film. This is film, of course. And uh, it was kind of cool. It was a two-year program. I opted out after the first year because I was like, I'm going to throw all this money into year two. I'm not going to walk away with a degree. I'm just going to walk away with more knowledge. But why don't I take that money that I would have put into my second year at London Film School and make a movie? So I didn't go back to London. I ended up moving to Boston and took the money I would have used, say, for my second year there, whatever, and pumped it into like making my own little indie film, which is 
pointless to talk about because it was <laughs> it was bad. But it was like my own thing. I was learning. Right? I, I wrote it, directed it, edited it. 16 millimeter film. And it was, this is before Daring Gap. It was, yeah, this was uh, before Daring Gap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this was like the early 90s. And then, so I was now thinking to myself, hmm, this could be kind of cool. Maybe I could do some filmmaking. I was really sucked into it via the editing process. Editing was what interested me initially because you could do it. I, I worked as an editor in other people's movies. Uh, there was a couple film editing places up in Boston. Remember that place, Boston Connection? where they'd rent out Steambecks. I worked there for a while. And, Absolutely, the Cody. Yeah, and had a lot of connections um, with various editors and, and got jobs as assistant editors and different projects and working on student films and that stuff, Mo mainly as an editor and really liked that process because it was just me and the thing and didn't involve like needing to squire together a whole crew and money and all that, right? Um, but while I was doing that and learning the ropes in that way, I also um started to think about well i was interested in like making my own movie um and so i started to write a script and cobble together some ideas and my dad when i was a kid another way i got into making those super eight movies because when i was a kid like a lot of people our age like the way your childhood was documented wasn't on super vhs or, or high eight or anything it was super eight film my dad took dozens or if not hundreds of super eight movies of us as kids so there's lots of this super eight footage i had in a big box in the attic and i remember looking through that stuff one christmas and just kind of going wouldn't it be cool to take these old super eight movies and weave them into a, a, a scripted movie that i write and shoot and the and the and the and the super eight movies my super eight movies can be flashbacks of this character's childhood. Like the movies would become the flashbacks, the super, actual super eight movies. And so that idea percolated and I wrote this script and this became my movie, The Daring Gap. This was the first feature I did. And I shot that film in Boston in mid nineties. And this was again, like, as I said, a real guerrilla style, like credit card movie. I shot it on credit cards. I used some money I had. I inherited a little money. I blew all that on the movie. I put together a financial thing so friends could invest in the movie and it was all bullshit but it was just enough to raise the money to get off the ground and we shot the film on 16 millimeter short ends right like the little pieces of film that they don't use remember it well and, yeah and uh and and i cast my friend in it and like no at no professional actors a really like it was like a Mike Fig. You're talking about Mike Figgis. It was like a Mike yeah. Figgis movie or Mike Lee movie or something, you know? Like totally improvised. The whole thing was made up. But anyhow, I edited it together. And as I said, I cut together my old Super 8 home movies into the movie that we shot. And it was kind of really, it, it kind of came out pretty well. It was very, it's sort of like a slacker comedy in a way, but, but it had a little heart to it, a little soulfulness to it. And, you know, it got into, that movie was my first, it got into the Sundance Film Festival, into the competition, no less. And I was just like, holy shit, back in 1996. And I had no idea what that even meant, but I knew it was a, a big deal. So that was the first time I had ever been to a film festival with, with even a movie, right? And um, and the movie played at Sundance and like no one bought it or anything, but it did like, you know, people, it, it gave me some connections. It got me an agent, right? It got me an agent at William Morris and that helped open up other doors. So, you know, I don't, I, it was poetic for me in the sense that I used my dad's old Super 8 home movies 
and incorporated his work <laughs> into my first film. It was kind of a nice way to follow that line of he ultimately was probably the inspiration for me wanting to pick up a Super 8 camera and ultimately became a filmmaker. And I used the movies that he made into my first movie and it became, it helped launch my career. I know he was very proud of that. So that was probably like how I got into it. You know, um, I, I don't think I ever thought of myself as a film director, right? I thought of myself in, in the sense of a filmmaker, like I'm going to make movies. I'm going to, just do the process of making the movies. The directing is part of that, right? But it's not the, it's not the only thing that interests me about it. Because even the music was, I worked on the music and the score and all that stuff, you know? I loved all that stuff. So it wasn't just the, the directing part. You, you did the score for Darian Gap or you had a, a composer or how did that work? I had, a, I had a friend who composed it. We sort of worked on it together in a way. Um, but, but ultimately, uh, but that's kind of, how I got into it. It was a little bit by happenstance, you know, I didn't go to, I didn't work my way up the, the little hierarchical ladder by becoming like a PA and then an assistant director and then a director. I didn't do the sort of traditional route. I just started making movies and like, there were little small, no budget movies. And some of them, some of them didn't even lead to anything and a couple did. So it was just really the process of doing it. I, I, I liken it to sort of like indie, like DIY music in a way. It was like like a dude sitting in his garage with like a four track and like a little sampler and just making cool music. Like that's what I was wanting to do with the movie thing. It wasn't like going and becoming part of the business or the industry. It wasn't really even a thought. And it still isn't because like, I don't think of myself as being in the industry. I think of myself like, if anything, working very much on the margins. But I like, you know, you dabble in it, but I certainly don't want to be like, I'm not like any kind of industry, corporate show business person. It's always been for me, like I do it because I love doing it. It's the passion of it. As you know, it's not like I'm doing it um, for anything other than that. I mean, look, television is a different thing. TV is like about, it's, it's a more of a corporate driven, like it's a job, but the movies are a little different for me. Like each movie is its own little journey or whatever you know that's that's worth taking i think and your and your current film is it is it blood which is the one yeah. that, is that is that done or is it in post what's going on with that yeah so the, my latest film is called blood <laughs> and let i'll let you it's 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 a dark like a Brad Anderson title to me <laughs> yeah i mean it is the one before it was fracture now it's blood so you can see where it's all going it's just people and accidents bleeding out now this one's actually it's blood but it's it's a sort of dual meaning it's about it has a vampire theme to it i'll admit there's a little bit of that although it's not a genre movie it's more of a family like drama but it's also about the blood that connects us like like you know you're my blood you know like you're my family you're my you're i'm related to you and it's about a mother whose son whose young son gets bitten by a dog and develops an a a uh propensity for human blood but not in a vampire way like it's almost like a medical condition like as if he needs the blood to survive and she has to she's a nurse at a hospital so she gets into a situation where she has to like be stealing plasma to bring home to feed her son it gets really twisted but it's not like he's out there like a vampire with fangs and all that it's, it doesn't adhere to the genre conventions it's it's a little offbeat 
So Michelle Monaghan is in that. She's great. And that movie we finished a few months back, did finish the post. And now we're, I think it's, we're, we're going to Berlin with it, I think in February to try to, you know, it's an indie. It was made independently and they'll try to sell it and do the usual nine yards, you know? Um, but yeah, it came out, it came out good. Um, shot that one in Winnipeg as well. <laughs> seems to be my go-to place. Um, if I'm not in Winnipeg, I'm in Vancouver because yeah, that's see, they're popular places to shoot. Yeah. For all the television is like 70 or 80 productions going on in Vancouver. Crazy. Crazy. And then, and then do you have um, uh, uh, specific people that you work with consistently in visual effects and all that kind of stuff or what's your. The people I've worked with. There are some that I've worked with on different projects again and again, but not anyone totally consistently. Like, and even with like directors of photography or production designers, like I try to find ways to collaborate with people I've collaborated with before that I like and that it works out, but often they're working or whatever and it doesn't work out. Um, but I have some go-to people that I love to work with if I can, you know? Um, yeah. uh, but, you know, I think everyone's always looking for work. Um, and yeah, it's busy time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. I mean, that's the that's the challenge. You can't always have the same crew and the same people working for you. But yeah. uh, but this, you know, your career is like uh, 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 absolutely amazing because you've got so much that you've accomplished uh, in both features and television. You keep rocking back and forth. And yeah. it's, uh, it, do you do you ever get pulled into other parts of the content world? Do you ever get asked to direct commercials or other weird stuff? Or do you not have time in your life to do that? I mean, I probably could make time. I don't, I, I've had, I've done one commercial in my life for a sleep medication and it was like, <laughs> it's a very bizarre experience. Didn't really like it. I, you know, when you have 15 executives all watching you shoot a close up of like a pill jar or something. I, I, it's not my world. I don't, I mean, you know, I'm sure there are other kinds of commercials, but it's just not like my thing. Um, so I flirted with it briefly long ago and didn't, pursue it so i wouldn't really see myself doing that but yeah not really other things i mean it, to me it's like you know i mean played around with doing some webisode type things for you know but i just find that i don't know i'm more of a conventional person when it comes to like storytelling and i want to watch sit in a theater and watch a movie right i want to watch a 90 minute to 120 minute movie in a theater right. that has a middle beginning and middle and end if not, then I'm watching a great television show, you know, um, but I don't, I don't really have a lot of, um, you know, kind of connections with other new media, new medium. I don't know. And, and what do you feel now about the, the relaunch of theater going? Do you, are you feeling positive? It seems like it's coming back. Movie I just theaters. saw West Side Story opening night uh, last Friday. Theater was packed. It was IMAX yes. in the uh, uh, 68th Street, Lincoln, Squ Lincoln Square, uh, which was cool because the West Side Story is set literally around the theater that we saw, like 68th and Broadway. And uh, the theater was packed, man. It was like, and this is probably a lot of those people's first time going to see the movie because it's Spielberg. Yeah, it is of course. Back. I mean, I've been going to movies consistently for the past six months, whenever they started opening Right. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm purposely going out as much as I can to see movies in theaters. Cause I 
enjoy that experience more than sitting at home watching on Netflix and just to get out of the house and see a film. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's, a, you can't match that experience. And also because it's not terribly crowded, you know what I mean? Cause not as many people are going. Um, it's a little, it's not like crazy at the theater. So I, yeah, I think, but I think it's coming back. I, it, you know, we, I've seen a few movies the past two weeks and um, the theater's always been pretty crowded and it seems kind of normal, you know? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah I, I hope so. Down. I hope it, I mean, let's, I, I can't imagine that a world in which you couldn't go see a movie in a movie theater. I mean, that seems hard to believe, but you know. No, 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 no. I, I think it's there. I think that the thing that shifted is just the windows that are being offered uh, for films that are being released on streaming and how long they make the theater going an exclusive opportunity. Is it yes. an exclusive thing to go to the cinema because you got to see something that's not available to see day and day. And, and to me that that's sort of the magic of what's kept the movies alive and exciting and the yeah. theaters alive and, and well, right. Yeah. I think it's a great solution. Like force people to see it first in the theaters and then, you know, if they want to wait, then they'll have to wait to see it on, uh, you know, on their television. Exactly right. And, and amazingly enough, I, I, as you can see, I, I, I live in a, in, in a, in a high light exposure apartment because the sun is coming at me and I'm about to turn and melt. <laughs> you look like, like when my producer, glowing, when my producer sees this, he's going to say, Charlie, there's this thing Get called blind. level or blinds. <laughs> Pass it on. Yeah, you're very, you, you're, yeah. You look like you're glowing. You have and an aura. It it. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. But it's good. I mean, it's a yeah. it little bit of and healthy and vibrant. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on this. Episode. Yeah, it was fun. Oh, good, good catching up and uh, and uh, uh, stay in touch. And and this was great. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Great talking to you, Joe. All right, buddy. Bye. All right. Talk soon. The Pod Matrix.